Hey, welcome to the Punk Rock Academy podcast with me, John. And me, Dave. How you doing today, John? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Dave. I'm very warm, uh, but keeping keeping well. How about yourself? I'm keeping, keeping well, keeping hydrated. H2O is the way to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just skip over that. Uh, we, yeah, well, we're, listen, we're about to listen to a, a really genuinely um, uh, very honest, very um, kind of tough listen, like probably the, the, the most honest conversation I think we've had. We cover some, some tough and big topics with Layla from Sonic Boom 6, but it's a really, it's a really interesting chat, isn't it, Dave? Oh, definitely. Uh, Layla's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal woman. Um, you know, being you know, a, a, a woman of uh, you know, Asian descent, um, being in a, in a male white ska punk scene back in the early noughties, it was very, very tough for for her and she tells her tales of you know growing up in that environment and and the more you speak to her the more I want to listen and yeah absolutely phenomenal woman yeah brilliant um it's a really good chat and um, she does mention as, as alongside the, the sort of big topics that we talk about she talks about going to these shows from a crazy early age she was 11 when she saw extreme um which yeah which is quite um which is quite something um I would, I would say extreme uh, thank you, Dave. God, you're f- full of puns today. Um, what was the first show that you went to? Anything embarrassing or, or cool? It wasn't embarrassing. It's pretty cool, but very um, safe. It was Green Day, but I was like 17. So obviously six years after Layla's first um, show. Uh, it was at the Astoria. It was, it was all right. Nothing. It's so boring, Dave. It, it really is boring. You know, it, I wish I could say, you know, I, I stumbled into some sort of back alley uh, punk rock show at the age of 12 or whatnot, but I just didn't. I was just like one of the ones who just played it safe, quit, like Michael Jackson until I was like 13, 14. Was too scared to ask my mum for money to go to a gig at 17, but obviously I got there in the end. But yeah, a bit boring, a bit safe. But how about you, John? I'm sure you've got a, a more of an entertaining story to tell. Well- well, I don't know about entertaining, but I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the very first sort of um, mini episode that we did, but I lived in Belgium and when I was about nine, maybe 10, my mum and dad took my brother, who's two years younger, and I to Brussels to some stadium uh, to see, or an arena, sorry, to see um, my heroes, New Kids on the Block, who I absolutely loved. And it was my mum, my dad, me and my brother, and about 10,000 screaming hysterical mostly girls um throwing themselves and anything they can get hold of or, or take off and my heroes who also were taking things off and it was like one of the most terrifying experiences of my life um and probably explains why i moved away from sort of boy bands to uh punk rock but um yeah that was my first gig uh i hated every second of it <laughs> it's awful you're such a liar such <laughs> a bad liar i really did i loved them but it was uh it was not not the kind of place for any any sort of young nine or ten year old eyes to be to be witnessing. I oh, bet um, you lost your voice that night. I'm not even joking. Well, I couldn't hear the songs because there was so much screaming going on. Um, in all seriousness, so it just it was a pretty uh, a, a very nice effort of my parents, but it must have been pretty awkward for them as well. But there we go. Um, definitely less cool than yours, more embarrassing. But I'm I'm proud. I'm proud to kind of have that one uh, up my sleeve. Um, listen, let's let's. Get straight into the chat with Layla. Hi. Hello, Layla. How are you? Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm a bit tired because I've had a really full on day, but uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. 
so, so Layla, um, as with a lot of Scar lovers, um, I was stoked to hear that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones had released a new album out. Yeah. And obviously when the first single dropped, The Final Parade, seven minute track, and, you know, Scar Punk Royalty, uh, Lesson Jake, Aquabats, Angelo Moore, you. Yeah. This <laughs> is phenomenal. So two questions, right? I want to ask you is how did that opportunity come about? And what did, you know, Aaron Barrett do to actually not appear on that? Did he piss Dickie Barrett off? Because it seems like every other <laughs> Scar legend was on that album, but Aaron Barrett. So the way it came about was, so a good friend of ours, Tim G, years and years ago, uh, did a remix. He did a mashup of Mike Mike Boston's The Impression That I Get with People Act Like They Don't Know by Sonic Boom 6. Somehow, Joe Gittleman out of Mike, Mike Boston, who's like the boss of them. Uh, he'd heard it, loved it. They were playing Reading one year, a few years ago, and Joe, and I was there. I can't remember whether we played or whether we were just there. We might have even played the day before. And um, Joe Gittleman was like, oh, do you want to come up and try doing like the mashup? And I was just like, uh, like I say yes to everything and then go, shit how am I meant to do a re how am I meant to do a remix with my mouth like I can't even I couldn't even remember how it went and we did it and it was so much fun and it was it was so good and that's why I'm a, such a big believer in saying yes to stuff because if it's gonna if it's meant to be it'll work out and if it doesn't work out hopefully there's a lesson to be learned from it well I'm glad you said yes to this yeah, yeah. And then um, we went on tour with them just before the pandemic hit. Got on with them instantly. They're really good friends with Kevin Lyman, who books the Vans Warped Tour. We did Vans Warped Tour three years ago, and it, it just all sort of came together. And then when we were in lockdown, Joe Gittleman messaged me and was like, look, we're doing this track. We've got loads of people on it. We really want you on it. Um, you know, you'll bring something a bit different because every, every voice on that track is unique. And that's what I love about it. Like, you know who it is because no one sounds uh, normal, if that makes sense. Uh, oh, oh, definitely. Like I was saying like, you, you be mixing me up Jay from Suicide Machines and exactly, then like... like... Like, none of us have normal voices where you can, where you'd go, oh, that, we don't know who that is. We've all got our very distinct style um and then yeah barney came around here we set up like we didn't know how we were going to do it because the, the studio we recorded in is in blackpool but we just did it on barney's laptop uh, uh just at ours and it turned out like i'd forgotten like we'd forgotten that we'd even done it and then joe sent us a link to the song and was like it's turned out great we're really happy with it and me, you know, being a human that's driven by ego, you know, I, I, I kind of like put it on and I was like, oh, I'm not on it. I did that and I'm not even on it. And I kept listening and I was like, oh, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Like I, I just, you, and you know why that came about? That came about because the amount of songs that I've done for other people and I think People have gone, Joe Gittleman would never do this because he knows me quite well, but the amount of bands that in the past that have gone, we need a female vocal, ah, let's ask Layla. And then I do it and they're like, oh no, we, we need a female vocal. 
we need someone that can sing. And that's not a detriment to me. It's just that if I sing, it sounds like me talking, but in tune. And it's not like a nice singy voice or, uh, you know, you've got to want my voice. It's, it, the part has to be written for my voice. Otherwise, it doesn't sound right. And there are so many bands that I've done stuff for where that where the song comes out and I'm like, that's not me. Like they've asked someone else or they've just not got the female vocal on there. And you know what? That's fine. But that is that's the reason why I just I'm justifying that when I first heard it, before I got to the end, I was like, oh, I'm not on it. And did you get much creative license with that? Or did they send you the track with all the sort of vocals and melodies already laid out? How much influence did you get on how that was going to sound eventually? No, no. So obviously they sent the they sent the instrumental, but not the full instrumental. They just sent a loop of that bit. And Joe Gittleman was like, you know, sing along with Dickie. Um, and he was like, but please make it your own, like, do whatever you need to do to get your personality across. So we did have we did have fun with it, you know. It was because it was it was a bit silly, and when we were listening back to it, we we're like, "How's this going to work?" But then we we're kind of like, "Well, it's not up to us to make it work. That's it's it's their music and it's their it's their creation. You know, we're just playing a tiny part of it. And then when you actually hear it all, you're just like." It's all the little bits that come together that make it a great song. I remember like listening to an interview with uh, Dickie and uh, Joe. It was, I think it was like Kristen makes a podcast, and he was talking about how Tim Armstrong wanted to make it like a fourteen-minute song originally, and he had to cut it. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like wow, that's very ambitious, very ambitious. So, did you know everyone who would actually you know um, who was going to be on the on the song before? No idea. He didn't. Literally, no idea. I think it was. He just said, there's going to be a few, there's going to be a few people. It's party song. There's going to be a few people. No, but when I, you know, like we were, and again, not, I'm not like putting us down, but we were by far the smallest name on there. Like, you know, compared to like the Interrupters and Tim Armstrong, that's kind of like, like not, it's like a mixture of scar punk royalty and sort of bands that are, you know, filling, nearly filling stadiums now. So it that's the that's the loving that's the amazing thing about the Mike Mike Boss tones. They do, they they create and foster a community, um, which you can feel part of even when you live hundreds of miles away. And they've always always shown us love, and that is the beauty of being in a band with from a scene. You know, when, when we started in the UK, we never fit in. The ska punk community were a bit like, oh, what's this rapping? Metal metal community were like, ooh, like it's girl singing and she's, you know, she's rapping. But but there was all always those people that just kind of got it, where they were just like, ah, this is the sound that I've been looking for. Because when we were doing, when we were making that kind of music, honestly, no one else was. Like no one else was doing the music, like the, the, the mix that we were doing at the time. And I'm talking like 2005. Mm -hmm. Obviously things are different now and it's not, as, it's not as frowned upon for 
well, actually, that's not true. But for a brown girl to be on stage, it looks a bit like a scally. Like, you know, people, she opens her mouth and she doesn't sound like anybody that other people know. Um, you know, with some scally white guys that pop up and rap and jump up and down and, you know, mosh. And it was, you know, it was, people found it, people found that they either totally got it or they were like, this is horrendous. Mm. Like, what is this? But with Americans, with American bands, they've always seen that, they've always seen that weirdness as being good. So well, like when we did the when we did Warp Tour or or the we we played America like so many times, people would be a lot more accepting because they they see that we were trying to do something different. Yeah. So I want I want I want to go with what you said just now because um, I I remember like you know part of the scene up north. I thought it was pretty special with bands like Random Hand and Catchy Kebabs uh, growing up. I also remember like um, going to Preston back in probably like 2002, 2003 um. and playing this gig. And um, at the back of the crowd, actually, there was a guy doing a Nazi salute. You know, very weird. So as a young woman of Asian descent, what, so what issues did you like face in a predominantly like white male environment? You know? And also what were your parents like when they discovered you know, their daughter getting caught up in this sort of scene? My parents didn't care. They've not really had much to do with my career choices. Yeah. So growing up as a young Pakistani woman, I was really embarrassed about the colour of my skin because I hung out with white people. I was accepted by white people. My dad was born here, so it was a bit, you know, I, ne I was always, like, conflicted. It's, and this is probably up until five... 10 years ago, like I was always conflicted because I was like, I was always running away from the color of my skin. I was always run, running away from my roots because I was like, it, it's not an issue. For me, it's not an issue. But then Barney, to be fair, would always be like, you should embrace your roots. Like you should, you know, like there's a song called Silent Majority on um, one of our albums. And he's like, why don't you like sing that bit in Urdu? And I'm like, ah, like, no, because well, I'm not, I don't want to invite people to be like, what is this? And this is like 2005, you know, when people weren't, people weren't tolerant or, or no, let me, let me rephrase that. I didn't think people were tolerant. And I thought that, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have people around at my house because I thought it smelled like curry. And that embarrassed me that brought out deep shame in me because all I wanted to be, all I wanted to do was fit in. When we, so when we played gigs, we played a gig in Holland and there was a guy in a Union Jack shirt, punk, mm. like doing the Nazi salute, spitting at me. And the way it, ha it, it happened more times than I like to remember actually, it's as if it would happen and I would be detached from it. I didn't want it to be because people see me as not, being not white but then you know I had four lads in a band from Manchester that were ready to kick the shit out of anyone for the smallest little thing <laughs> so you know literally that would happen and Barney before I even could blink would be off the stage like trying to beat the shit out of someone for doing that and it, it, you know it happened a few times and it, you know maybe people thought it was part of the set or whatever but he would not stand for it good 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. He wouldn't stand for it. And you know, we played we played flo uh, with flogging Molly at the Astoria, and beer cans being hurled at me. And in hindsight, at the time, I was just like, oh, it's just because of our music. Like you know, we're growing up there with a backing track rapping, but then also incredibly heavy in parts. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, it's it was because there was just a load of racist bastards at that gig. You know what, you're probably a lot braver than you thought you were, you know, mm -hmm. at the time, because, you know, if if you knew how you were going to be treated going into that environment, you know, I think a lot of people would be like, well, well. No one was doing it. I didn't see, I didn't see one person of colour doing what our band were doing. Like, honestly. Like, yeah, and there were very few women compared to men doing it, especially in the underground, really. Yeah, and especially that kind of music where it's like inviting it to be rough, you know. Mm. Live, we are we are very very heavy. Like we can play with Skin Dread and hold our own, and Skin Dread are like one of the heaviest bands we know. So, so Leila, going back to the beginning, how is it that um, someone who's um, described themselves as quite socially awkward um, and uncomfortable with their background? Mm -hmm. Um, ends up finding themselves with this particular group of people stumbling on this particular sound with no role models um, and goes from being this sort of shy, awkward teenager to, to someone that's sort of front and centre um, yeah. of, of a stage. How, how does that journey sort of happen? Um, do you know what? It's all, my whole life has been, whenever I get to a crossroads, I, I, the right decision seems to guide me. And like every single thing I have fallen into and the band was no exception. You know, I didn't have any mates. I was awkward. I was angry. I was drinking from a very young age. I started drinking when I was 11. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just clicked with Barney, like at the age of 12, like we, we clicked. We were kind of similar. He was like a bit more of a bod, like would get A's and stuff. So I kind of hated him, but then we were like drawn together as well. And then they, we became friends, you know, and we we would listen to music. Um, I was very much metal, like I was very much like cheesy metal, like Guns N' Roses were my favorite band. I didn't wear a blazer, I wore a denim jacket with a Appetite for Destruction patch on the back of it. And I was very much like, and, and Barney was very Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, but then, our love of music is what kind of brought us together. And, you know, then we'd have a mutual love of bands like Pantera. And then we started going to gigs really early on. So when we were like 14, we never, we'd never grown up yet at that age. We were very old for our boots. So, you know, we went to so many gigs. We went to Machine Head, Pantera, Green Day. We went to so many gigs. But not like people go to gigs now where it's like, I'm a gig goer. We were children. <laughs> mm, that's very young. We, we were children between the ages of 14 and 16. We, you know, we'd sort of discovered drinking, taking drugs, and we were just, we just had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. And then Barney was like setting up this band uh, and they were playing in his mum and dad's garage. So his mum and dad are amazing. Like they took me in for a little bit and I was kind of like trying to mold myself to be like Barney. So, you know, I only went to uni because Barney was going to uni. And I was like, oh, what's this? U like, I've not even heard of university. 
And I was like, oh, what's this university thing? Well, if you're going, I'm going. Like, you're not going, if I'm not going, like kind of thing. <laughs> so he was putting this band together and it was him, Neil, this guy called Simon Ospina from school. Barney was singing. And then suddenly Barney was just like, oh, Layla, you get up and sing. And I, I was so insecure. I was like, you know, so insecure, so ashamed of where I came from, so lonely. And so I felt so unloved, you know, I didn't know what it felt like to, to be loved and to be nourished and to be looked after. And that insecurity was such a big black hole inside of me that when Barney was like, oh, get up and sing, because I was in the school choir and I loved it. But then a, a horrible teacher, like I had, I had a solo in the school choir and she was like, oh, you shouldn't be doing solos. And, you know, and I was just like, okay. So I always had this like complex and so Barney would be like, get up, what's up with you? Get up and sing, like get up and like, you know, doing Alanis Morissette covers and stuff. And he had to force me, I would fight him and I'd be like, I don't want to. I was so awkward and I was so angry at the world. And he would be like, you've got to do it. Like, you'd be amazing. Like, come and do it, come and do it. And I would just fight it. And then I'd just drink. I'd drink enough to get enough confidence to be able to do it. But it would just, I hated every minute of it. So tell us what that first gig was like. I mean, I appreciate the first gig might have not been that busy, but it still feels quite exciting, doesn't it? Was it, um, was it a very exciting um, or terrifying experience? And without sort of being too dramatic, did, did it sort of save you? No, no, because I was too far gone. I think I was too, I never did, I never felt like I deserved that space. I always was running away from it. And I always felt, I always felt like this picture of us from our first gig, and it wasn't actually Sonic Boom 6, it was our first band. And we were called Grimace. And every bastard in Manchester wanted to be Oasis. And there was us doing this weird scar pop reggae thing with me singing, wearing like baggy pants and a little sequin um, boob tube. Yeah, the first gig, it's just so nerve wracking. Like the nerves were just, you know, I couldn't remember the lyrics. I, I felt really uncomfortable in what I was wearing. I was wearing black Adidas tracksuit bottoms with red stripes on them, really baggy. And then like this purple cardigan, which you know what? It was the 90s, so that would probably look <laughs> all right now. But I, 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 I just felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I just, I did not, I did not like me. I grew into performing, singing, performing, like getting on the stage, especially when an audience thinks you're shit or they don't know who you are. My favorite gigs are festivals when hardly anyone knows who you are, like a festival in Germany or somewhere or in France, hardly anybody knows who you are. And you're just like, oh, yes, I am going to get you. I'm so <laughs> going to get you. By the end, you don't know who we are. We don't know our music and they're all bouncing. So I guess I've come quite a long way to be able to do that. Definitely. Um, so just just quickly going back um, to the, obviously the the song "Final Parade" with the Boss Tones. How, how has it been received? Have you got a lot of feedback from that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mostly our mostly our mates that are just like, "Fucking hell! You never told me you were on the new Mighty Mighty Boss Tones song." I was just listening to it and I was like, 
that's Layla. I was like, sorry, like, I didn't know if we were meant to tell anyone or anything like that. And it was lovely, you know, like loads of the bands that were on it, like Tag Doors, I think like in, Interrupters Tag Doors. And it was just really nice because, you know, when, when you've been in a band so long, especially when it's hard work, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing gigs that you don't really want to play, but they pay so that you can do the next gig. And our life was becoming a bit like that. You know, you look at other bands and you're like, oh, we've worked so hard. Why can't we have that? You know, why are we not that as big as this band or whatever? And like, as you get older, you're just like, who cares? Because every step that you get up, a new set of problems open that you have to deal with. So you just have to get better at dealing with life. And then things like the Mike Mike Boston thing, they come to you. Because you stop fighting and you stop looking and you stop, you, you kind of surrender to life and go, you know what, whatever happens now will happen. And honestly, since I've done that, loads of good things. Lo- you know, I get people, I have like, so I work for a music therapy charity and I will be in a meeting with somebody that's the head of a massive festival. And we'll be chatting away about music therapy and Lord of Robins and stuff. And then, you know, before the meeting ends, this guy was like, um, I'm really sorry, I meant to bring this up before, but are you Layla from Sonic Boom 6? And I was like, yes, I am, hello. And he was like, oh my God, I love your band, like blah, 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 like the." And I'm just like, I was never open to that before. Like I was never- Hard one, isn't it? It's a kind of British thing, but it's also like the idea of accepting compliments and praise. It's just a very- oh, I love it. I'm like, bring it up before. <laughs> When you're looking for compliments, you don't see them. Someone said to me the other day, um, musicians are, are, are especially, you're so busy trying to climb that wall because you're like, oh, when I get to the top of this wall, everything is going to be amazing. I'm going to be wadded. I'm going to be lean. I'm going to be like, I'm going to look good. I'm going to be able to afford to buy this and that. You're so obsessed with that that you don't see there's a gate right in front of you. Once you see it, you're just like, oh, I can breathe because we've put the hours in, we've put the work in. And I am so proud of what we've achieved. We were a band. We've not been on a major label. We've not had any support. And we have the whole of our 20s. We toured the world in a van as mate from school We went to Croatia, Macedonia, Japan. We've been to America so many times. Just as we thought we were winding down, not not splitting up, but just as we thought we were winding down in 2017, Barney got this job in London. So, you know, his focus, his obsession of Sonic Boom 6, which lasted like 15 years, was now shifted to, you know, and fair enough. He was like, well... I want to put this energy into something else now. It doesn't mean Sonic Boom 6 won't still be here. You know, as soon as that energy shifted, it's like suddenly two years later, we get an email off Kevin Lyman saying, look, I love Sonic Boom 6. He thought we were a new band. Like when I was sat with him, he was like, yeah, you know, my daughter showed me No Man, No Right. And I was like, I need to get this new band on what bands warp tour. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that, we were the oldest band there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and you know, when we got that email, we didn't have booking agent at the time, didn't have a label. We get an email from Kevin Lyman. I want Sonic Boom Six on the on the Vans Warped Tour. And we were like, that is something that 
when I was a kid, that was like, you know, bucket list, what? Main stage, Redden Leeds, done. Glastonbury, done it. Uh, Download, done it. Sonisphere, done it. The one that we never in a million years thought we'd be able to do, and we asked a lot of, a lot of times, was the whole of the Vans Warped Tour. And not only did we do it, it was the second to last ever Vans Warped Tour. Like, that's what happens when you just don't, just stop giving a shit. <laughs> well, I think you've got to probably have some talent as well. <laughs> it's the well, in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ob- obviously you've got to be like totally talented, but um, it just, it's just exhausting, like holding on to that. Like, why not us? You know, why this band and why not us? And it's complete human. You're absolutely right. I mean, it consumes everything. When we were in our 20s, Dave and I both did it. And we spent most of our free time, a lot of free cash, annual leave, driving to, you know, the, uh, you know, some back room of a pub to play to 30 people. And, and we sacrificed a lot. You don't sort of have the same sort of friendships or family experiences that I think other people do. And I think it's probably a good lesson in life to not sort of have all your eggs in one basket and to have other other interests. You know, I think it's a good good lesson in life to have, really, isn't it? It is, it is. And that's what life's about because for too long, you know, we we become a we become a little business. We'd become a little business and it was great. But you know, we moved to London because uh, our manager at the time was like, look, you've been in Manchester all your life. Move to London, more opportunities there, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the shit that you, you see on telly and you think, how can you believe that? What you do at the time. Um, and we did. And then it's like, well, we've got to find a grand a month now to pay rent. Whereas I was living with my uncle rent free. Like, and your life is made up of different chapters and you can't just do the same thing. You know, both me and Barney have a lot of energy and we have a lot to give and we have a lot of passion. And it, it just got to a point in the band where it had to start becoming for fun because we've, it's, it's all we've known since we were 18. Younger, 16, it's all we've known. And like, I don't want to be resentful at it. I just can't believe it. You know, I've got this amazing job now and that I wouldn't have got if I'd not done Sonic Boom 6. And I just thought when it was like, oh, I've got to get a job now. I was just like, God, how, how are my skills transferable? And without those skills now, I could not do my job. I could not do it as well as I do it. And so everything does happen for a reason. And Barney's saying, you know, his knowledge about bands, um, digital, like how to do things to get like the most clicks and stuff. That is all from him building our social platforms from scratch when Facebook, Twitter, Instagram were just breaking. You know, like that's, that's, that's experience. You can't, you can't get that anywhere else. Hey, so Leila, give a shout out to your, you know, your charity, your music therapy charity. Tell me more oh, about that. Yeah, so um, I work for an amazing charity. Uh, it's called Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy. I'm so lucky to have got a job within the music industry because it's the music industry's charity of choice because it's been going for 50, 50 odd years. But the connection that I see, so our music therapists are, are trained in the Nordoff Robbins approach, which is based on improvisation. We work with people with unimaginable difficulties um, that they face. 
every day. And that can be a disability, children with autism, it can be elderly people with dementia. And our music therapists invite people to join them to make music. And sometimes I, I see the work they do and I'm like, how can you, how, how is this person going to make music? How is this person with locked-in syndrome who can only blink going to make music with a music therapist? And it's all about inviting that person, making them feel equal and connecting to the well part of that person. So if the well part is blinking, then that is what the music making becomes because then that person and the music therapist come together to create something. Not one person is leading the other. They are side by side. And every day I'm just like, and my job, I've got the best job. My job is to connect people from the music industry and artists to the work of the charity and to empower them to be able to go out into the world and say, oh my God, Nordoff Robbins do this. I've seen this and this is why you should support them. It's like I was born to do this job. Oh, it's amazing. I think, um, you know, between the the stories that you've heard on the ground for your charity work and also the changes that you've experienced yourself, you've probably got a, just a slightly different perspective on things, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've not thought about that before, but you're right. Well, talking about, about change, back to something you said earlier that I'm interested in. Um, you mentioned that certain scenes were perhaps more receptive to, to what you guys were trying to do, um, which, was, which was something quite new. Um, do you think the UK scene is now more open-minded than it was like it, like it was in the States when you first went there? Or is it still quite difficult to break through with a new sound? What do you think? A hundred percent, yeah. Like we, we, we've always had like a, a sampler, like a backing track, like when we do the hip hop songs and stuff. Because we will literally go from double time punk to a hip hop song. Not many people do that. The last tour we did was, was with Skin Dread and we were such a good fit. The most important thing we want to do is if you see Sonic Boom 6, I want you to bounce. I want you to bounce and have a good time. Go home and be like, oh, what's that song? Like, you know, look at the lyrics and then know that we stand for something. Like we don't, we don't, like Barney is our lyricist and he, he would rather die than write lyrics that don't come from his heart and that don't have some kind of social commentary. Because, you know, we get so, we used to get so much, we used to get so much shit, like musicians shouldn't be political and stuff like that. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, I hate when people say that. It's, you know, you've got a voice, use it. You know, use, use it how you want to. And we'll do what we want. <laughs> Like, you know, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, there's so much going on that it's, yeah. yeah. I love the, the image of that Appetite for Destruction back patch on the, uh, on the denim jacket. Um, I'm just wondering, obviously, you, you know, you talk about some of the, the issues you had growing up. Was there much music around? Do you remember much music being around when, when you were growing up? Um, and how did you eventually find your way to that kind of harder, harder sound? Oh, it was, it, it, it's, it, it saved my life. Like, you know, at like 10, 11 years old and always, always massively into music. So my mum and dad had uh, shops in Moss Side Precinct in Manchester. <clears throat> and I remember this woman had a record store 
and she would just play records all day and it was it was amazing I just remember how music made me feel and I got to 10 or 11 11 actually and it was the Freddie Mercury tribute concert on telly and I very much felt like I was at a crossroads in my life like like I I was ready to be scooped up and have an identity whether I felt it or not was a different matter and and the Freddie Mercury tribute started and you know I, I loved Queen even when I was a kid and suddenly this guy with ginger hair bandana leather jacket with a United Kingdom flag on the back literally runs onto the stage and it's Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses start playing and I have never felt like like that again I was just like what the fuck is this and how how do I not know about it and that day my journey started like I was obsessed like with Guns N' Roses and then from Guns N' Roses I got into you know my, the first gig I ever went to was a, a band called Extreme um, Extreme. <laughs> yeah I know I know went always burning I was, I was like 11 and I was just I didn't realize that this I guess the music complemented my life it was loud and it was for me it's always been about performers it's always been about people that not necessarily the sound that they're making, but that can have an audience like gripped in their hands. So obviously Freddie Mercury with that. I mean, both Freddie and Axel have got incredible voices and that performance. But I just remember that was it. I was just off. I bought, well, I stole, I didn't buy, but every copy of Kerrang, every copy of Raw magazine. And my life, I just immersed myself in that music. I would just, you know, it, it was my escape. And that's why I really connect with people that, you know, people that say the power of music. And sometimes sometimes it can sound lame, can't it? Like the power of music, what does it mean? But that had the power to keep me connected to something so that I didn't feel as disconnected from the world. Like I felt it was for me and nobody else. And that was so special. So before then, like, what was what music was playing in your household, like, from your, from your parents' side of things? Simon and Garfunkel, The Beatles, David Bowie, and there was always music, like, on the radio, and, and like, Mossai Precinct was um, predominantly uh, black, you know, like, it was, it was a lot of black people there, mixed with Asian people, so there was so much reggae and so much... Um, just like Whitney Houston, like Whitney, I remember Whitney Houston always being on um, and my uncle loved music. So yeah, it was like a real mixture. It's like a real mixture of, of things. So a lot of influences to draw from really, you know, you know, in your formative years. Yeah, I just feel like I didn't really draw the influences from it because I didn't have that, I didn't have the confidence to be like, you know, let's take it in this direction or let's take it in that direction, which is fine, you know, because I was happy to be along for the ride. But that doesn't mean that it didn't shape my life in other ways. You know, being on stage, you know, there's nothing like channeling Axl Rose when you're on stage, if he's on <laughs> not, not two hours late. And, um, you know, because it, it, 
if you put that swagger into your performance, you'll never be Axel Rose and no one will know, or they will now, but no one will know that you're channel at, channeling Axel because it's your interpretation of it. And you can act and feel like you're somebody else. Is that actually, is that a genuine conscious decision you make before you go on stage? Not always, not always. Like maybe when I was like a kid, <laughs> I'd be like, right, you know, don't worry, it'll be fine. Just be Axel. <laughs> what would Axel that's, do? Oh yeah, well, that's probably not a good one. <laughs> um, but you know, it's sad. And I, I didn't have any female role, role models at all. And I do think that's really important because that made me very, um, I didn't have any female friends. I've only had, I have a really close group of female friends now, only as I got older. I didn't understand what it was to, have a group of friends that were girls because I grew up surrounded by heavy music by it was male dominated it was it was sexist the lyrics were sexist you know they're not like lyrics that you want to be singing on your balcony um, it meant that I developed a very unhealthy understanding or no understanding of what it was like to have female friends but but now you know, obviously you're 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 an Asian woman who's been in a punk alternative band and you are the role model for other young girls um oh. who you know who could see you on stage if you're like, no, Layla's done that, you know, why can't I do that? You know, yeah. and it's yeah. always harder being being the first. But you know, you're obviously you know, you're creating you know, you're creating ways for the next next generation. So yeah, fair play to you. Yeah, I remember we used to get really annoyed because like when all our gigs was just full of lads. And we'd just be like, where the fuck are the girls? Like, what's going on? And then more recently, I see lots of women and lots of women of color as well. And I'm like, oh, thank fuck. Like, because, you know, we sing songs like Kids of the Mul for the kids of the multiculture. Like we can't be any more blatant. And we will still get people, if you actually go on that video on YouTube and read the comments, there are people just like, what the fuck is this shit? And like just blatantly racist. And you're like, but you like our band. There are people that actually like our band that will sing along for the kids of the multiculture and are racist. And I'm like, whoa, whoa you've totally missed the point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's it's the responsibility of, of all of us actually to play our part in, in trying to improve things. Um, and some very big, some very big conversations to have, but certainly um, that need to happen. Mm. Leila, we've taken up um, nearly an hour of your time, and it's been um, it's been fantastic. It's been really, really brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, thing is, it's like I can only be honest now because I've not really got anything to hide. Before, in the past, I had to always pretend I was okay, and you know, I'm cool, and you know, putting on this sort of front or whatever. And now I'm just like you know what, everybody feels shit. Everybody at some point in their life feels shit. You're not alone. And when you're feeling that you're most disconnected, there's, there's, there's music, you know, and there's, there are people out there that do care. And, you know, I wish I'd have known that, but I know it now, so it's all good. 
Um, and Leila, one final question that we always ask all our guests, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put a bit of a twist on it on this particular episode. Um, we always ask for someone's favorite okay. favorite band, um, but you mentioned obviously um, feeling feeling low and in times when you feel a bit down. What's the band that you tend to turn to the most in those um, in those sort of lower and maybe darker moments? Oh, without a doubt, the Smiths. Like the Smiths, and you know, I know. You've all cancelled Morrissey and, you know, I get it. But, like, oh, but the lyrical, like, his lyrics can get in my heart like like no one else. You feel his pain. You hear when he's, like, smirking. You can hear him smirking on songs by the Smith. And, you know, Johnny Marr, like, it, it's, for me, it's heavenly. It, it, it's, it, I, I can escape to a point where I can either, I can wallow in it, I can smile in it, I can be like, any emotion that I am feeling will mould around the Smiths. What a phenomenal woman, John. What a phenomenal woman. Um, what, what a phenomenal person. Very heavy. Very inspirational. I think inspirational is the word. I mean, look, she's, um, it was a really, really good chat. And I think she's, Layla's got the point in her life, as she said, where she can't be anything but honest. And she's, you know, come to terms with a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of challenges that she faced early on. Uh, she's faced them head on and she's in a really good place. And um, I'm really, really proud that she was able to share some of those stories with us today and also talk about some of the more kind of fun, interesting and, um, quirky parts of being in a in a band so um i hope you guys enjoyed the chat um and check out sonic boom six uh and you know if you haven't already go and and sort of like and follow us and all sorts of um podcast listening places uh and you know if you want to leave reviews or whatever it is people do that would be great as well wouldn't it dave where, where can people find out um more about where to listen to the Punk Rock Academy podcast. Well, they can listen to us on all good streaming sites, you know, Apple Music, you've got um, Spotify. If they want to get in touch with us, they can do so at prepodcast at gmail.com. They can go to our Twitter at prepodcast or they can go to our Instagram account, which we're very, you know, very active on at Punk Rock Academy podcast. I'm Layla Kay. I am from the band Sonic Boom 6 and you are listening to the Punk Rock Academy podcast.